This is Jeremiah Ojo, founder of Ile Kunwa, and you're listening to Studio Noise. Yes, it's the noise. I see you in your Zoom meeting. Look down at your notes, baby. All you see is a bunch of guys playing football, a bunch of little men playing football. <laughs> You've been dueling the whole time. That's the noise. That's the noise, the sound of creation. Get out of that Zoom meeting and come holler at your boy. It's the Studio Noise Podcast, sponsored by NBAF, National Black Arts. They got a lot of cool stuff going on. We got some good stuff coming uh, to you from them and towards the end of the summer it's a, it's gonna be good y- y- y'all gonna love it i promise you so check them out at nbf.org and you already know it's the studio noise podcast you know artists talks with all of the fixings i mean art tips personal insights motivations and all that good stuff but it ain't no raisins and nothing we don't do that over here no because black people do art and black people make culture, and we talk about it right here on the noise. It's your boy Jay Barber, the professor. Jay Barber, printmaker, artist, uh, third year grad student, trying to get it done. Uh, my co host Jiggy Jazz is out on assignment. So, right now, all summer, you just got me and I got you. We're going to keep it rocking all summer long. I'm going to bring y'all these interviews. Y'all keep the dialogue flowing. Stay in the studio, make some noise, wear your mask, all that good stuff. Uh, before we get started, you know, as always, it's always a great day to arrest the killers of Breonna Taylor. And that's the vibes over here. Today, we got a super special episode for you. Uh, coming at you, we got master printmaker Steve Prince. In honor of having another great relief printmaker on the podcast, we're just going to celebrate printmaking right here today on, on The Noise. Uh, we're going to give away three, count them, three printmaking kits, relief printmaking kits from McLean's. So we got the Namase Mocha Honda kit with the four tools. You got a honing block so you can make sure your tool's nice and sharp. And they included some Sheena plywood blocks for you to try out. So it's the whole thing. Everything you need to get started right here. You'll be so energized after listening to me and Steve. Had this great conversation about printmaking, about relief, about techniques, and all that good stuff. You can be so excited. You can get your kit and then you can get to work and you'll be right there with us. I'm going to keep it super simple. So just head over to IG, go to at Studio Noise Podcast. That's the Studio Noise Instagram. And just comment that you want one of the kits right there in the comments. Uh, Also, that's one chance to enter. Uh, Then you can tag up to three friends and just let them know they need to be listening to Studio Noise. So that'll give you four chances to enter. And I'll go ahead and give you a bonus chance since I'm so nice. (laughs) Since I'm so nice and and just want to give you better odds to get a chance to win this thing uh, to share one of the studio noise podcast episodes in your story tag studio noise to make sure I get a chance to see it. And bam, there you got five chances, five chances for you to win one of these kits. And this is a great kit. I started to keep them for myself, but you know, that's not right. <laughs> that's not right for me to do that. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm playing it fair. We're going to pick a winner from the random number generator. It's going to run all this week and I'll announce it on Monday on the studio noise uh, Instagram, and then you'll know what to win. So good luck to everybody. Just go ahead and make sure you follow the noise. 
You can tag up to three friends and you can share one of the episodes in your stories. Bam, there you go. And you enter the win. It's a great. It's a win-win for everybody, really, because, I mean, I get to spread the love and joy of printmaking. You get free printmaking kits. It's a win-win for everybody. And that brings us to the Studio Noise question of the week, which is what organizations are you supporting that are supporting black artists? Right. Good. Big shout out to McLean's for for coming on Studio Noise and giving it. They've been sharing a lot of black artists over there on Instagram. But um, what have you been sharing? Have you been donating to people? Uh, have you been, you know, posting, reposting, giving publicity, like uh, attending events? You know, what I'm saying masked up, of course, or anything like that. I mean, it's super important, especially like times like this, where I know a lot of people are having a hard time. Uh, a lot of a lot of shows got canceled. A lot of shows got pushed back. Uh, a lot of stuff is moving around. So, you know, just making sure we taking care of each other out there. So I'm going to shout out one organization in particular, uh, and that is the Black Creatives Community Fund. And that's at BCC Fund on Instagram. That was started by Talisha Tucker, who is one of the photo MFA grads at Georgia State. Big shout out to her. She's a first year. Well, I'm going to second year now. Going into second year. So during the quarantine time, she felt like she needed something to do and wanted to reach out and do something to help other people. So she started this fund. And so the first round, uh, she started collecting donations for artists and giving artists $500 grants that they don't have to pay back just to give them some support. And so she picked 16 artists. She was able to get 16 artists this money, which is incredible, right? So big shout out to her for actually going out and getting stuff done. I was one of the artists. It was very unexpected, but you know, it's grateful. Do you know what I'm saying? Because all the stuff gets moved around. You just need like a little bit to get you through. And it's a little bit to help. You know what I'm saying? $500 is a lot of money. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So I appreciate it. I appreciate her for, you know, taking initiative and doing this thing. So, you know, for people like that, and all the other people, it's a man, arts and, and grants all around Atlanta. So in the post on Studio Noise, make sure y'all post and tag all these people so we can shout them out. And we also want to let people know about all of these groups that are raising this money and giving money and making it easier for people to get by out here. So that's super necessary, especially at a time like this. So definitely want to shout that out. So y'all let me know. It's going to be right there on the comments. I appreciate all y'all like keeping me company this summer and commenting on Instagram uh, it's been great to have this conversation with y'all. You know, it's it's a few people. It's you know, it's building momentum. So I appreciate it. I hope this um we get get a little bit more shine on a lot of people that are helping artists right now because that's what we need. So do that. Uh, enter the contest. And right now, I mean, right now you just need to sit back and listen to this episode. What we got? The one and only master printmaker, Mr. Steve Prince, on the noise. It's Studio Noise. It's your boy Jay Barber, and I'm sitting with the man himself, one of my art brothers in the printmaking, uh, Mr. Steve Prince. How you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing very well, brother. Uh, brother Barber. That's what's up, yo. So, anybody that don't know is Steve Prince. He's a relief carver, uh, printmaker, uh, teacher. Right now, he's the. Let me get this right. Right now, he's the director of engagement at the. At, how you pronounce it, Miscarelli? 
Museum of Art at William and Mary. Yes, Muscarelli Museum. That's what's up, man. So how you how you liking it out there in VA? I'm liking it a lot. Um, been here um, for the past uh, year and a half, um, and so forth. And um, you know, with this new job, it's the first time I've ever worked in a museum, so it's a bit of a shift for me. Um, you know, just uh, conceptually, just working with uh, museum professionals and things like that. Because the bulk of my career, um, of course, I've been creating art, but I've also been working um, uh, teaching. And so I've taught middle school, high school, uh, I've taught at community college, I've taught at four-year public, and I've taught at four-year private institutions. And so that's where it's been more or less my day job, you know, working in, in teaching and so forth. And now in this role at the Muscarelli Museum as the director of engagement, Many times I get asked, what is that job and what does that mean? And um, it was a position that was created for me to work with the various skill sets that I've garnered over the course of the years that, that I've been working out in the field. And what I mean by the different skill sets, not only as um, I consider myself definitely a mixed media artist, most people know me from my prints and my drawings, um, but I also have done sculpture and I've done painting and different media. Um, and I've taught it over the years. Um, to so many different people at, at, at those various different cognitive levels. And then um, I've done, I've conducted a lot of workshops um, all over the country and, and a few of them internationally, uh, working with, again, with different age brackets. And then I've created a lot of public works um, in sculpture and prints and, and you know, printmaking and drawing and painting, all those different kinds of things. And so this job gives me this ability that I'm able to create my own workshops, my create my own content, um, create my own connection with the community. And so for the past for the past year of this job, um, what I did was I endeavored to try to make as many different community partners uh, to help support the kind of work that I'm doing through the museum. And what I mean by that ultimately is is building trust with the community. So I've gone out and made contact and connection with people and uh, supported their projects and programs, volunteered and doing different uh, teaching and, and so forth. And so now, as I've been here for a year and a half, now I'm trying to start making some calls on some of those people that I made some initial contacts with and just find the ways of connecting the dots and bringing them together, uh, finding those spaces of commonality. And whereas I can act as an agent within the community to draw people together. So that's that's ultimately what I do. Yeah, and I, I think you do a, a great job at it too. If anybody knows you or can look at your your IG at One Fish Studio, uh, they can see like all the community projects you're doing, and I I think that's one of the things I really love about your practice that I try to do like myself to get these big collaborative like initiatives going on. And we'll get into like some of the other ones uh, as we as we go on and talk about your work um, specifically. Um, but yeah. uh, but. I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about what I think about your work and then get you to respond a little bit. Uh, okay. So what I what I see when I look at your work a lot is uh, first thing I see is like these really expressive figures in your work. And I think that's just comes from like the your style, how you draw figures and like your sketches and stuff. And then you end up carving them like around your you carve the negative space on your positive drawings. Right. That's why I'm, yeah, as, as I see it. So I see the expressive figures. I see the narrative and I see kind of a spiritual core uh, to what you're doing, like all the time. Like there's always these messages inside of messages inside of like these really complex, really expressive compositions. And uh, I think that's what 
I personally enjoy about your work a lot. Like that gives me something to, to strive for. My work is more minimum, like I'm more minimal to say I'm, I'm more graphic when I carve and um, in, in, in that kind of technique. But uh, what do you think about that? Um, I, I think that's a very, I think you have offered a very keen um, kind of reading of my work. Um, definitely, um, I, I'll go back to the first element that you drew upon, which is uh, stylistically in terms of my approach. Um, foundationally, what I'm doing with the work is uh, drawing is uh, my first love when it comes to art. And so when you're yeah, seeing... Yeah, it's, it's easy to see that too. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to bring my drawings to life through the medium of printmaking. And um, I love the marks and the textures and the shapes that you're able to achieve. Um, but very much, I, I am um, putting a drawing down and I'm carving around those positive lines. But of course, as you know, a person working in relief, um, there are things that I end up carving or I don't carve in terms of the process because I know that there is a shift uh, within that process um, in the making, that a shift that things that you can do graphically that doesn't necessarily translate over in terms of a drawing. Right. So I'm, I'm yielding at many times to the process. Um, and, and I've been trying to pay attention to it, you know, over the years that I've done it. You know, the very first time that I was exposed to doing something like linoleum cut or, or wood cuts um, or monoprint or printmaking was when I was an undergrad at Xavier University of Louisiana. And um, shoot, I remember that first time I got the kiss off of that block and it was it was magical. Yeah. And, um, and then to, and then to be told that I could do the same thing again off that same piece. Uh, I was just I was literally blown away by the whole process. And that mystery and that wonder that you get when you carve and you put the paper down and you pull it back. And um, and sometimes you don't get exactly what you thought you were going to get, um, because, of course, that, that, that image becomes the mirror. Um, and then there are things that show up that you didn't see before yeah. um, when you were craving it and making it and so forth. And so I love that that kind of chance, that spontaneity that occurs with it. Um, that improvisational kind of happening. I, I love all those things and how they congeal together in terms of the creation. But then to go foundationally within my work, you know, to say, you know, what what am I thinking about as uh, as an artist, um, as far as what is behind it? Um, that that kind of really goes back to my roots growing up in New Orleans, you know, and um, and I and of course, as any artist would do, you just go back over the course of your life and think about the accumulation of those things that make make up who you are. And one of those things that you touched on the point is that spiritual path. And, um, you know, I was a, I was a guy who went through, you know, um, kinder, kindergarten through college in a Catholic institutions. So I was constantly exposed to nuns in the church. And, right. you know, at that time I was an altar boy and and um um, and then my mom being a Baptist and my dad being Catholic and um, all those different things have kind of fed me over the years. And then as I, you know, as I departed from my home and created my own space and started my own journey, um, uh, you know, I began to understand my own faith walk. And then how does that filter in? And then to think about all those things, the faith walk, and especially if you think about it in the history of African-Americans and about the way in which spirituality was enacted upon the, the African turned American in this nation. And as we look at slavery and all those different things, I'm very conscious of all that uh, as it relates to faith, as I'm also very conscious about the way in which faith played this way within the African-American community as like a balm 
um, that has basically helped us through all kinds of various issues. And so my work is drawing upon all that and it's drawing upon that past, you know, and, you know, you also just talked about just the kind of graphic nature of my figures and the way in which I'm building them and constructing them and um, the drama of the body that goes back to my first love, which was comics, you know, and, yeah. we, you know, be an artist working for Marvel comics, you know, um, I kind of got, un I was not as enamored with that path right around the time I was in high school going into college. And not that I really, not that I wanted to break from it is that I wanted to basically express my own space. I didn't want to necessarily have the artwork, which I was doing and just totally have it to be produced for that company. Right. You know, I wanted to make my own characters. And then one thing I noticed, and of course, as I'm going through this journey as an African-American male, I'm noticing the spaces of black. I'm noticing within that context of that creation where I was not. I noticed the, the lack of female representation, especially any kind of black uh, heroes. I noticed that the black male representation was very limited, very sparse. You know, you can see the, the, the nature of the hunger within our community and the way in which the Black Panther exploded. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. And wanting a black hero in that representation, whereas we have had to kind of, you know, go go to the Wolverines and go to the Captain Americas and go to these other characters, the Iron Man and all these so forth. And these characters are not necessarily reflective of us, you know, and so we end up looking up to them and we we give them a pass um, and say it's OK, it's cool to go ahead and support one of those characters as being a super being, you know. And so my question was, where, why can't I be one of those super beings? Why? You know, so I started making my own comic books, Prince Comics, and and I started making my own characters and things like that. Nice. And so, nice. In a way, I see. What I'm doing now is an extension of that. So you're getting snapshots of those comics, but these comics are based on the everyday superheroes, the everyday super beings, the everyday, everyday deity, I believe that we all are, the everyday kind of sacredness of our being, of our expression of black people of, of, of have done all kinds of magnanimous things throughout history and have shaped it and have shaped this country, you know, in every aspect, the food, the 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 culture, the music, the dance, and everything we have touched. The culture, the yeah. The culture. We This culture, how bland would it be? How flavorless would it be if it didn't have black people? No, oh, they wouldn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm championing that. That's what I'm attached to, you know, and I do it unapologetically, um, you know, as I know you do as well um, in terms of your work. And, and I want to, you know, you know, I... I I'll tell you a quick little story. Some years ago, I was working on a series called Old Testament. And you've seen a few of those pieces. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because they were in the show that I had there at uh, Zucat. Yeah, a lot um, of them series. And so I had these pieces I was making, and I, I had a friend of mine who I, named, who I will leave nameless. Um, was seeing some of these pieces, you know, in the early stages. You know, I was making them. I was sharing with them. And, you know, a black friend of mine asked me, he said, well, hey, man. You know, to make these things a little bit more marketable, have you thought about making some white people in these same kind of configuration that you're making for this series? And I said, no, I have not thought about making white people in this particular series. And I said, not that I have anything against white people and don't want to have them representation. I said, but there's an oversaturation of white people in all aspects of their life when it comes to the arts that they show the full range of them. You know, right. I said, where do we see in museum culture? our gallery culture, a representation of the black 
person or the black body represented in spaces of love and nurturance and exchange and in a healthy relationship, a, a healthy complex relationship. Right. Where do we see those representations? We don't see them. I have gone to museum at the museum, gallery at the gallery, and they're not the rep- those representations are not championed. Those are not on the walls. And so I wanted to add something to that to that conversation. And so my works, you know, yeah, show some of the you know some of the works outside of that series show some of the pain and whatever. But one thing that's always true in my work is that I show you the power, I show you the the, the creativity, the imagination, I show you the strength of character, I show you the faith. I show you the full being of the African-American experience and how it has been able to navigate these really, really harsh, this really, really harsh terrain to be black in America. And but at the same time, keep on living, keep on surviving, keep on passing it on. That's my work is centered on. Yeah. And you can definitely feel that in all of your things. You brought up the Old Testament series and, and I'm going to ask a few questions about that. Well, we we ruminate about that a little bit because. I think that's one of the series that I saw from you it was one of the first like series like I saw from you. Like I had seen like other um, images, uh, but that's mm-hmm. the first one that connected. And it, and it and it feels like and tell me if I'm wrong, but it feels like the story of a couple, like a black couple told through these various Bible passages. Like as you went on, is that kind of the, the idea behind it? It is. OK, it is. Yeah. And, and it is. Yeah. It's it's it goes to this, these two as a double idea. One idea of um, that our path is an individual one, meaning that you live and you're going to die. You're going to do it by yourself. And and whatever we got to face on the other side, whether we believe in the afterlife or not, whatever the case is, you're doing it by yourself. That's what I believe. And but when you find someone, you know, that you can connect with. And I think about the idea of. What the series was speaking to was the speaking to black love, black connectivity. Right. Yeah. Way in which those kind of elements have not been represented again within the larger cultural context. And I'll, again, it's just that series is just another way in which I'm, I'm trying to speak about the many aspects, the many facets of the black existence. Yeah. So. A lot of my work that you've probably seen prior to that was definitely fixated on a lot of historical pieces yep, yep. And, and so forth. But, I mean, even in that series, there's a lot of historical stuff in it. It's just really subtle. Yeah. And, and I think that's more subtle, more subtle than my most of my work. It has been historically. I, I think is I think of it more as layered than I think of it as subtle, because because if you really look at it and when you do start, when you start breaking it down, that's when I would get real excited because you get on a roll <laughs> And you start going, man. That just, <laughs> I love it. But so, uh, like, take going back to the series a little bit. Like, take a piece. Like, I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna walk through like three of them. I just picked out three. Uh, okay. I walked through Job, take me to the water, Leviticus mm-hmm. burnt offering, and yep. Song of Solomon. Um, yeah. And so, in those three pieces, one in Job, you have the couple sitting at the table. And you can you can just see from all the little pieces that you put into it, which I love about your work, um, Mm -hmm. that that everything has a symbolism to it. Like even the little things that you think is doesn't have something to do with a story or part of another story or some other connection to history that you put into it. 
Then you have Leviticus where the couple is sitting at the table. And so this series starts to feel like a progression of a relationship, a healthy progression of a relationship, which I love too. And Mm -hmm. and then the Song of Solomon, when they're together, um, you know, just uh, in in a scene of intimacy, right? I'll just say it like that. Like tell yeah. us, tell us, am I am I dead on on that one? Oh, you you you're spot on. <laughs> I mean, you really are. The first one you mentioned, Joe, you um you accidentally just repeated the idea that it's at a table. That one, they actually sitting on the porch. Oh, steps, yeah, steps, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. right, 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 right. Sorry about um, that. I know. Um, but anyway, um, that one, uh, they're sitting on the steps, and that one was very personal to me because it was speaking a, a lot about Hurricane Katrina, mm. and. They're, they're sitting on the porch of a house, which was the house that I grew up in. And the marking on the house was not real. I made that one up, but it was a real marking in terms of the insignia that they put on each one of the houses. And at the very top of this X that they were marking the homes with spray paint, uh, that will be the date that they will go into the home. Mm. The, the quadrant to the right, if you go clockwise, the quadrant to the right, that would be the space that they would let you know if there were any animals in that house. The spot at the bottom, which would be at, at uh, uh, six o'clock at the very bottom, that one would let you know if there are any people inside the home. Wow. And let you know what the state of it is. And then at nine o'clock, that would let you know what group it was because they had small groups and clusters that would go out to all the homes and check them to check for those things. And so in that art piece, Job, Take Me to the Water, if we go to the biblical story of Job, we know Job goes through all these various series of calamities and he goes through, you know, boils on his skin. He loses his family. Um, you know, he loses his livestock and he goes through all this stuff, but all through it all, he never loses faith within God. And I liken that to myself, not to say that I went through every single thing that Job went through, but I went through a number of them um, in terms of, uh, of an experience as a human being. And I, I went to that story of Job because when Hurricane Katrina hit in 2005, um, post Hurricane Katrina, like three years, I mean, maybe like three years post Hurricane Katrina, I lost uh, one of my professors from undergrad, who's like a second father to me. Mm. I lost my mom mm. and I lost uh, two aunts, no, there were three aunts and two uncles. So it was just like, it was a season of loss. Yeah. Was going through, and then you know every baby picture that I had that I grew up with was destroyed in Hurricane Katrina back in my mom, my dad's home. Um, a lot of my 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 elementary school was destroyed. My high school was destroyed. You know, only thing that's still standing is my alma mater, which is my undergrad institution. And you know, so it's just it felt like Job. You know, so that's where I likened that too. And then in that image, you'll note that the guy has his fingers and he's touching right onto the woman's strap of her clothing. And I liken that from a poetics, you know, that's like he's holding on the fragility of life, which is like that strength, mm. you know, and yeah. we teach on that every single day, you know. And then then there's an extra nugget inside that piece. And then you got to go into art history. Um, one of my favorite artists is Andrew Wyeth. And there's a piece that he created was called Gulfstream. And in the image Gulfstream, there uh, there shows a, a black man sitting on a on a, on a boat. And he's caught in shark infested water because he got caught up in a tempest in a storm. And his boat mass is broken. He has sugarcane on the boat. Sharks are, are fleeing all around him in the water. 
and he's basically doomed to die out there because uh, he can't drink the water. You know, he's using the salt water and so forth. So anyway, um, in the background of the composition, you see a you see a ship, and that ship eventually comes along and saves him. Right. So that guy was a real person. Tells the story to Andrew Wyeth. And Andrew Wyeth tried to create a painting to encapsulate that. And that guy said that he believed that God was going to save him. And that's why he's in the image. And he's just laying back on the boat. He's chilling. <laughs> I mean, he literally, if you look at the image, he's laying back and he's kind of looking off to the side and he, he doesn't seem to be phased by it. So Andrew Wyeth was like so blown away by the story. He's like, I got to tell a story to this black man. And what he, what he says, and it's like, this man here believed in his faith that God was going to save him, and it came true for him, and he's on the other side to be able to tell this story. How many times have we heard this story? Yeah, all the time. That's the story of, uh, <laughs> of Black America right there. Uh, hope, hope not seen, right? Yes, yes. And so that's that's what I'll try to tell with that piece, you know, is, is that. And I said, we're going to be all right through it. Now, we're not going to be the same. Um how could Job in that story be the same? He still lost his wife. He still lost his livestock. He still was was stricken with calamity to his body. You know, that the loss is there. It's gone. It ain't, no, ain't no coming back. But there was some level of a peace within his heart that anchored him and that kept him, that continued to feed him, that began to give him a way that there's a way out of nowhere. And that, again, like you said, is embedded within the black community. And that is what's been passed on to us. And so I'm working out of that which has been passed on. I'm working from that spirit. That's what my mom was speaking of. You know, John Scott, you know, was 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 a person who was a mentor to me at Xavier University of Louisiana, which is a Catholic college, the only black black Catholic college in the Western Hemisphere. And he was working out of the same kind of spirit, you know, was embedded within his work. And I remember the conversations I had with him. I remember talking about career. I remember sharing with him the things that I was doing, what I was thinking about. I remember those many times I've just called him out of the, you know, call him and talk to him for a couple of hours just about work and about life and about making it and about the issues that I was going through at Michigan State as a grad student, you know, and how helpful he was to me through those different situations, you know. So yeah. all that at peace, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that, and again, I, I guess I would have to definitely agree with you that yeah, definitely my work is no doubt layered. Yeah. Uh, with story with narrative but that's us we layer with story with narrative that's sure. all reflecting who we are and and look how look how you can use that subtlety to just the gesture of a hand onto her her um the strap of her her dress uh can say that much about and infer that much into his state of mind to the state of mind of the people around him to is that that gesture you know what i'm saying it's so strong man Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's what I love. And I always uh, have been trying to, to incorporate some of that more into my work is like these kind of these real expressive gestures that you get with your people. Where does that come from? Like, did you did you just um, do a lot of like drawing from life, like in a sketchbook or something? Like, how do you how do you manage to capture so much of that movement in 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 character? Yes, um, all the above. I mean, one, like I said, some of some of it's that comic book background that I have, but a lot of it's just by repetition. You know, I'm drawing all the time. I draw every day. Um, I'm always drawing. I'm always doodling. I'm always drawing people. And I do. A, I've done a ton of figure drawing, and I've taught a ton of figure drawing to different people. 
Um, but, um, but I also got to look at the other arc of my life, which was, you know, foundationally that um, of dance. You know, mm. I'm a person who loves to dance. I love movement. I love the kinesthetics of that. And, you know, I've never done it in terms of like a, um, uh, any organized way. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I dance, you know, just as, in, you know, growing up in, in the house and my dad would put music on and we would just dance in the living room or, or dancing at a party or dancing at a wedding. And um, shoot, I can dance until the, until the cows come home. I, mean, I just really <laughs> love, I love moving. And if you ever see me at a party and a dance and if there's music going, you would not see me sitting on the side. I'm going to be up and moving. And many times I end up surprising people with that how nimble I am at being, you know, <laughs> and they're like, dang, the brother Baker moves, you know, <laughs> you know, and I love it, you know, as long as I can do it, you know, you know, as the age is added, catching up to me, but um, I'm going to keep on moving as long as I can. And um, the other aspect of it has been my long uh, involvement in sport. And, you know, my first sport that I saw off in was, um, was martial arts. And then it was tennis. And then it was track and then it was basketball. And the two that I, well, I excelled in all of them. You know, I was, I was just a really good all around athlete, but the two that I excelled in the most out of all of them over, over my course of my sports history was in, um, was in uh, track and in basketball. And I had scholarships to go to, to, to go to um, undergrad uh, for both of those uh, sports. And I chose the basketball scholarship and that's how I ended up going to Xavier University of Louisiana. You know, that was an institution at that time I couldn't afford mm. uh, if I was just to go out there flat outright. You know, my family couldn't afford me to go there. It, was, it would have been too expensive. Yeah. And I would have had to have gone to, you know, one of the state schools like, you, you know, University of New Orleans or something like that um, um, in order for me to be able to afford it. But because I was a good athlete, I was able to go there. So when you start talking about the art, um, you know, I understand the kinesthetics and you know, the movement. I understand placement and balance. and um, you know, I'm always reading bodies. When you're playing sports, you're reading so much stuff, so many subtleties and nuances are growing right. when you're trying to read your opponent. You know, so many places where you're trying to force them to and get them to go to where you're trying to you're trying to pick up their tendencies. And that requires you to look very carefully at people. And by being me, my me being an, a visual artist and having the that dexterity of the hand eye coordination, I'm able to capture that stuff. Um, unlike perhaps maybe like a lot of other people may not be able to, but they probably able to be able to see it, um, what I'm talking about. And, yeah. um, so, and I put that into the work. Yeah. And, um, Rob, yeah, Rob, so, of Ernie Barnes, Ernie Barnes said the same thing about his football allowed him to start thinking about the elongation of his, of his figures. Yeah. And who was one of my major influences? Ernie Barnes. <laughs> 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 yes, and I can go down the list of of who my major influences are, but definitely he's he's high on that list. Yeah, yeah, that that makes perfect sense, man. It, like when you describe it, I can see it like uh, in your work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know, like for example, Ernie Barnes. I mean, he was, you know, he influenced so many. He's one of those unsung artists. Yeah, for sure. Um, that. He's not like mentioned all the time, but if you mention it to a group of black artists, they will say, "Oh, absolutely, I remember good times." <laughs> <laughs> no, and they remember yeah. that, shit, you know. And uh, but no, I talk about him all the time. Um, for a while, I was doing the exact same thing he was doing, elongating my figures and so forth. Now I do it to a certain degree, but not quite, because you know, again, 
you always want to try to create your own vocabulary. Right. Um, um, I am not trying to hide from the fact that I have drawn from a lot of vocabulary from a lot of different people. So if somebody says, well, dang, that remind me of Charles White. Oh, that remind me of Catlett. Or, or that reminds me of Biggers. Or that reminds me. If they say all those names, then there's no denying that I, all those people have influenced me. And I dare say that every single one of them were influenced by each other and different people along the way that they pulled little nuggets from and built into their own vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely a, a continuation of a legacy. I, I see it as. Um, yeah, because I study. Yeah, I study like all those yeah. names, like just like you, that Charles White, the Catlett, the, you know, all those people, Driscoll. Like, you know, I can study all of them uh, just mm-hmm. to be able to learn. Because you got to learn the lessons, like learn the lessons that they learned, like see yeah. see what they brought into their artwork that made it so special. You have to kind of look back to be able to go forward. And so mm-hmm. I think part of it is just having your own artistic vision allows you to bring in bits and pieces without copying like and i yeah. think that's the most important thing is like I, now i can filter all those ideas um all that um lois malu jones you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like all those names into your body and it can come out and be reminiscent of them but not them exactly it's still you it's still steve exactly. prince when it comes out yes yes I, I think that's a critical statement you made right there because um i i think that i think that turning point for me um, I, I, grad school was necessary for me. I don't believe that grad school is necessary for everybody. Um, and which is, is bared itself out there. A number of very successful artists that have not gone to grad school. But for me, it was, it was critical for me because, um, it, it was a time, those three years was so critical for me to really help me to develop that voice. And I would say it was probably around 1999, 2000 is where I really like found Steve Prince. Right. Found exactly who, not only who I wanted to be, the kind of work that I wanted to do, what I wanted to dedicate my life to, and um, and what also would I, would I hold to our endeavor to pass on. You know, I, it all came together right around 1999, uh, 2000, 2001 right in that bracket that's when i really kind of found myself and 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 found you know exactly what i wanted to do in my composition so somebody sees my work um i mean they may they may see echoes of them and they, that's all they will say they won't say oh that is just like so-and-so right yeah i haven't heard that in my work and if i did i i would be i think i might be a little upset <laughs> <laughs> like you copied so all, all the straight all the sports stuff with that like no i didn't <laughs> this is eddie filer I'm a portrait artist, and you are listening to Studio Noise. Thank you very much. What, what, what was the thing? What was the thing that, that, that got you up there? Was it just like working and kind of a moment came to you, or was it like a happening? I, I think it was, um, it was a key piece I made um, that I can point to. And it was a piece I created. It was called Nine Little Indians. And it was a tribute to the Little Rock Nine in Integration Public Schools in 1957. And in that image, 
I started the, the the seedlings of creating this kind of my own kind of Steve Steve isms or Steve vocabulary. Right. And that's when I created this little thing, this, this little patch I created. It's called an AOG patch. And um, I've gotten asked this question a lot of times because it, it recurs in a lot of my work. And it's like a shape of a shield. And it has letters AOG on it. And it stands for the armor of God. Mm. Or it also stands for the army of God. And it also stands for the assembly of God. And it's an idea that comes out of the book of Ephesians and where Paul writes, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and things in high places. And the idea of that AOG, of that patch, is something that I believe that has been seen and unseen and recurring within the African-American community or the black community over time. And what I mean by that is, is that I believe through it all, if we just think about those different key figures that endured in those times and that maybe and also have endured even in their death, that they're still alive in us and we're still drawing from them and we're still learning from them, that uh, I believe that's part of our spiritual path, or our spiritual journey. So I've in that image, I put these kind of armor like pieces on the characters. And I always said that they're really not there, but they're there. Mm. Because they have to have their minds protected, their hearts protected, their bodies protected in order for those key figures to do what they did. You know, the ordinary, extraordinary things that people did. And one of those people was Rosa Parks. You know, she was an ordinary, extraordinary person. Right. She did something that was very ordinary. She refused to get up. That's ordinary. There ain't nothing extraordinary about that. But the extraordinary element is, is that she did it. And that there was a whole movement that came behind her. You know, we can go, but we can get into all the historical ramifications around it because there was somebody else who did it before her. And I'm sure there was other places that other people did it that just didn't get a chance to have it within a record. You know, um, like, for example, I'll give you another story that I've used in my artwork. It's a story about Linda Brent, who went by the, the pen name of Harry Jacobs. Linda Brent was a woman in North Carolina who was caught up in slavery uh, and so forth. And so she escaped the overtures of a slave master by hiding in the attic space of a grandmother's house for seven years. Wow. That's, that's extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but how many other people whose stories did not get to be told right. did the exact same thing? You know, how many other people stood truth to power that the story didn't, that get, did not get told because out of fear of the, the, the people who are controlling of the news said that that story shouldn't get out. Don't tell that story because if they get that story get out, then that might give the others some ideas. How many of those stories have been buried, you know, and have been lost, you know? And that's what pushes me into another story that I've, I've recently been telling about um, my great grandmother who was caught up in indentured servitude and who um, escaped from the gentle servitude by wearing a hoop dress and she hid two of her kids underneath her hoop dress. Wow. And freedom. You know, that's her story. And one of those people that was underneath my grandmother's hoop dress, my great grandma's hoop dress, was my grandmother. Wow. <laughs> who gives birth to my mother? Who gives birth to me? And I'm telling the story. But that story has no history books. Nobody's telling that story. I don't know. I'm the one who's telling the story because my sister told me. My sister, who's seven years old, me, told me the story. And I'm like, wow, that's extraordinary. So I'm telling that story now and I'm showing in my artwork, you know, and then somebody can come out on the other side and say, well, you can't substantiate that that actually happened. I said, well, you can't substantiate it that it did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do know 
that people did some extraordinary things to get us to where we're at now. For and sure. that's <laughs> For sure. And I think that you can't dismiss that. And I, I think a, a lot of times where people look back and they want to, uh, you know, because we're, we're deep in the protest now. Um, yeah. Everybody thinks that this generation is somehow changing or doing something completely different. Like, no, mm. look, look at the photographs from then. Look at what they were doing. Look at the guys that were taking pictures of themselves, black men drinking from white only fountains that don't seem like it would be an extraordinary thing now. But think about it at that time, what they had to go through to get that, what they risked in order to show in their own small way their resistance. Yes. Like, you know, yep. you, you, you can't deny the, the power and courage that it took for them to do that. No, you can't. Yeah. No. And, and that's that's, you know, Jamal, that's so much of what I draw upon is 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 paying homage to, you know, our ancestors and those who gave it all and those who, you know, did 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 those everyday extraordinary things, you know, and um, there's an art piece I made years ago when I called it. Um, it was a piece I made in honor of of kids graduating. And um, that I taught, you know, that were going through college and so forth. And I called it You Walk the Walk Our Forefathers Talked About. And, and that's that that's that's it. I mean, think about how many people who wanted to go to college, but think about how many people sacrificed so their kids could go to college. Right. And those people are my parents. You know, my parents didn't go to college coming up. You know, they finished out, you know, high school. And that was it. They were working or they were in the military. That's how it was. You know, in those days. And you had no choices. You know, the choices that I have now, um, shoot, we didn't have it, you know, a uh, hundred years ago. Right. Uh, the, the amount of choices. It was certain people, certain people from the community had those, had the access. You know, unless you had some extraordinary gift, you weren't getting out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You were trapped. Yeah. You know, that's, that's how it is, you know. And um, so I, I'm so thankful uh, for the gifts that I have that has been able to open doors for me. Um, I'm so, I, I take it very sacredly when I go into a classroom and I teach anytime, I don't care if I'm teaching for 15 minutes, an hour, whatever, that time is sacred that I'm engaging with a student. I'm talking to a life that's in front of me. I'm encouraging, I'm uplifting, I'm sharing, you know, that that's, that's power. You know, and um, so I, I take I'm never taking my my teaching lightly. You know, and that's one of one of the things that I've always done. Every classroom that I have ever walked in, this is something I say in private. I've consecrated my classes that I've walked into. Mm. I mean, I stood at the doorway, the threshold, and I blessed the doorway before my students walk in it. I say a prayer over every classroom that I do that I've done over the years, you know, ever since I started teaching. When I started teaching high school, I consecrated the door, the doorway, the threshold. That that's a secret threshold you walk into this room. You know what I'm saying? So that's 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 the way I take this job, you know. And so now as a director of engagement, you know, for the Muscarella Museum, man, shoot, I'm uh I'm now I'm working with as young as, you know, five and as old as ninety-five. <laughs> right, range, yeah. All within a month, yeah. I work with that full range, you know, but I got to be thankful for the journey that's prepared me to do that. 
And I'm also thankful for the gifts that I have that enables me to be able to shift and talk to little kids and go to, hey, little kitties, how are you doing? What's going on? <laughs> go to talk to adults. Hey, what's up, folks? This is me, Steve Prince. Boom. You heard the tonal shift. Yeah. And the way, I mean, if you could see me, you would have seen my body even changed in terms of how I move. I can't go in front of a bunch of adults doing that. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what the heck? <laughs> uh, <who is> this guy. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> but Man, I can get away with that. With five and seven year olds, I get in and start dancing, I start beatboxing, I can do all that stuff and just let it out. And the kids just laugh, they crack up, and they start making noises. Do that again, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Wow. Yeah, that made me think of a of a piece that you did. Um, had the words and address. What was it called? The Living Epistle. Yes. Uh, it re- reminds me of that piece because because that piece is is a woman like throwing up her hands. Uh, you know, shouting and in, in, like all her dress, like you had this uh passage. What, what was it in the dress? Yeah, it's a, a paraphrase scripture quote. A paraphrase scripture quote coming from Second uh, uh, Corinthians, and it basically says, "I I am a living epistle, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the Living God, not in tables of stone, but in the plush tables of the heart." And the idea of that piece as a living epistle is that. Each and every one of us is a living letter. Right. That everybody can read us, you know, so I can read you. You can read me. And and so my 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 person, my being, my expression, my spirit, it 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 it, it, it emanates, it flows out of me. And 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 so with that, again, there's a great responsibility in terms of how you will that spirit or will that being. And um and the woman Yes, she's in this kind of shout like posture, but she's in a double posture of praise. Mm. And again, it goes what you said about my work about the layers. Um, she has one hand that's lifted up and one hand is down. And if you look at her dress carefully, you'll note that I played off of the formation of a maze, meaning that you can literally move from one letter into the next because no letter is disconnected. They all connected. So you can flow through those words and, and, and know that you're going through a maze. And if you look at the early Christian church, they used the maze um, as part of their spiritual practice. And the maze, when a person will walk the maze, they will pray. So when you walk through the maze, you will walk with your hands upraised. And as you walk, you will pray to God and asking God to give you guidance. But once you get to the middle of that maze and make it through and make your way and work your way back out of that maze, you will put your hands down by your side and that would be a posture of acceptance to God. Mm. And so that's why I put this woman one, she surrenders to God and then two, she uh, or surrenders or asks for God to give her guidance. And then two, she shows that she's receiving what God has said and she's walking out into the world to do what God has said for her to do with her life and be the living epistle that we're all are called to be. That's what that piece that's the heart of that piece. That's what the living epistle represents. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's what you're describing. Is that right there? Like you you are the living embodiment of it. Like even in the artwork you can make, the the projects that you do with other people, how you presenting it, even even you taking the care to consecrate your classroom space before people get there. Like, I mean, that's a that's a whole nother level of of um dedication. Do you know what I mean? Like like this, you like actually living and doing the work uh, that's taught in this in the Bible. 
indeed. I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm doing, trying to do the best I can. Um, I, I'm always, I mean, I've, I've been very fortunate um, to speak in a lot of different pulpits um, across this nation and, um, and speak on many, many given Sunday um, and churches and so forth and use my artwork as a tool in the vehicle to share the message and share the gospel. Um, but I always say that um, I am the first recipient of any message I put out, um, that I condemn no one, um, for I know that I'm a flawed person. I know that um, I'm not perfect, um, but I also know that uh, that God, I, I believe that God has used all kinds of people, and so therefore use me, um, use my imperfect self, um, use my imperfect being. Um, and then if it's going to be if I'm going to be used, even in my imperfectness and I can do something that's good that will affect another life. And so be it. Um, but, you know, I, I stand on no platitudes or anything and thinking I'm better or greater or think that I'm more spiritual or I'm more touched than anyone else. I'm just like Rosa. I'm an everyday person trying my best to do extraordinary things or be used to do extraordinary things. That's it. And that's 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 the mark. That's the walk. And, and this walk is so short, man. Oh, I mean, yeah. in, in our context of our minds, we might think, oh, we might live to 80 or 90. Or, that's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> fly by, man. <laughs> <It's> nothing. <laughs> you know, I, we you know, years ago, I remember just um, sitting down and pondering, just thinking about insects and animals and just thinking about the complexity of something like an ant. You know, something so small and so appearing to be so minuscule and insignificant. You know, I, I think about the story by Dr. Seuss, you know, Horton hears a who. That Dr. Seuss was on to something with that, man. You know, Horton hears a who. He, you know, he heard something on the, he saw a world on a piece of a lint. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, that's us. We are on a piece of lint. <laughs> The size of the universe, how small it is, but yet we get caught up with how big we think the world is. And it's really about how small and insignificant it is. And it really starts, if you start thinking about it too much, it just wrecks your brain. Yeah. You know, we start thinking about space and the fact that it's infinite. Like, what do you mean it's infinite? But then if it ends, then what's beyond what's beyond the end? You know, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't comprehend it. No, we can't. And so, therefore, I have, I have yielded. In my own path, and I, you know, I don't put this on no one else, but this is my path I'm speaking of, is that I yielded that there has to be a God, <laughs> you know, out of that conclusion, right. out of that. Yeah. It gets to the point where your brain can't even begin to wrap it, to even begin to package it. It shuts down. And all the greatest minds on this planet combined don't know. <laughs> 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 I don't know. I don't know how brilliant you think that person is or how smart you think that person is. They don't know. They can't tell you what's coming after after you quote unquote die. Yeah. <laughs> they have no clue. I mean, they, they say all the stuff and they can throw out all the scientific reasoning and whatever. It's all theory. <laughs> you know? And yeah. and I know. I know I don't know. You know, so therefore I I think it's in important there there becomes a point when you just have to believe and you have to have faith and and there there in that faith and that belief and that movement that you walk and you traverse uh 
I don't know. I, I've experienced so much power and so much transformative power um, in being able to make a way out of no way um, through it. And, that, and that's, again, that's another space I work out of. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Tell us about the Lynx Project, man. I, I really like this one. Oh, yeah, man. Thank you. Um, the Lynx Project, um, uh, of course, last year was the 400th anniversary of the um, uh, 1619, the first 20 and odd Africans coming to Point Comfort, which is now known as Hampton. And I currently live about uh, 20, 35 minutes away from Hampton right now, 40 minutes maybe max. And um, so at working at the museum, I approached the museum about creating one, creating a show and commemorating the 1619, 2019, uh, 400 anniversary um, in, in, in tying into that uh that conversation. And so me and the person who's head of collection, my name is Melissa Paris, um, and myself um, started to put together a, um, an exhibition um, that we drew upon African-American artists um, and Native American artists to have a, a show of their works at the Muscarelli Museum. And then we had one more person add to the mix, um, Melissa Paris and uh, Danielle Morietti Langholz, who is a specialist in Native American studies here at Women Mary, the three of us co-curated an exhibition called 1619-2019. Uh, and as another communal component, I said, I would love to do a project uh, called the links, where I would use the chain link, which will allude to slavery or incarceration. I want to use it as a metaphorical idea um, and push the metaphor beyond slavery and incarceration and think about the links about our, as, as a representation of our connections to each other. And so um, I created this project, whereas I had these four by eight foot panels that are cut up into puzzle pieces. And through the middle of these panels was a repeat pattern chain link thing, uh, piece that I made that went through each one of the panels. And it ended up being uh, 32 feet in length. The whole piece. Wow. And um, uh, and like I said, this chain link becomes like the black line that kind of ties it all together. That's repeating. And then I, I traveled to South Africa last year in, in the, for the whole month of July. So I, I traveled, I mailed the project there and I had 20 people participate in it in South Africa of different ethnic backgrounds there. And then I did majority majority of the workshops where I had different people do woodcuts using not traditional hand carving tools and if, you know, as you know and i know if i were trying to teach people we've never done work with woodcutting tools <laughs> for the first time i might as well just pull out the stitches the, the and yeah the band sponsored by band-aid yeah sponsored by yeah. band-aid sponsored by band-aid there's gonna be a lot of bleeding going on and especially if, like, I had as young as 10 and as old as 77 oh yeah doing woodcuts for the very first time so i used dremel tools uh for them to do it and i had Knock on wood, I had no casualties. No one got hurt, no cuts, no blood, nothing. Nice. Because uh, it's 100 times safer than using a traditional tool. But you're able to mimic a woodcut pretty closely with using a Dremel tool. So um, I did most of the workshops here at an auxiliary site at the Muscarelli Museum, where I have a studio at as well. And I would have, I invited different workshops. I worked with about, I don't know, 35, almost 40 workshops. I had like three interns working with me. And we conducted these workshops that were ranged from anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours in length. 
and each person was given a wood block and you could not choose the block you were given. I gave it to you randomly. And that was done on purpose because I wanted you to think about the block as a representation of you. You didn't get to choose the body you came into. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the fact that I'm 6'6", African-American, left-handed, flat foot in New Orleans, Louisiana by my parents. I didn't choose that. That happened because those two decided to get together. Right. And so I gave you that block with that spirit. But then once you got that block, once you got that unusual shape, you were to create something that represented you or representing something that represented about this history on the surface of that block. And um, so all of this stuff culminated on November 7th. And as part of the ASWIDE conference, which was at our campus, ASWIDE stands for the Association for the Study of Worldwide African Diaspora. They had their annual or biannual conference on our campus. And I did it during that same week that they were here. And I went outside of the Wren Building, which is the oldest continuous academic building in the United States. Now, mind you, William & Mary was founded, what, 1693? Wow. Um, and this institution is the second oldest institution behind Harvard University. Wow. William & Mary owned slaves, sold slaves to keep students in school, used slaves to cook the food, wash the clothes, build the buildings. That's what this institution was foundationally built on, you know? And, I mean, to just play the history out some, you talk about... 1619, 1693 is roughly about 75 years that this institution gets founded and it owned, owned slaves and so forth. And it was about 275 years post that that you had the first African-Americans to live on the campus where I teach at. Wow. Where, where I work at. So and that was in 1967. Three African-American women were the first to be resident students on the campus. And ironically, in Jefferson Hall. And we can go into that history. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, I, you know, when I first got introduced to the school, and I'm going to jump stories and I jump back to the links. When I first got introduced to the school, um, before I got my job here, I did a special project commemorating those three women. who, um, And they all, all three of them are still alive and vibrant and doing different things in their communities, retired now, but they're still vibrant and working. Um, I did a project where I taught for a month at Women Mary, and I had 12 students in the class. The youngest was 19 and the oldest was 70. And I created a mixed media piece called Lemonade, where it was a mixture of bronze casting, woodcut, and acrylic painting. I pulled those three mediums together and created this piece with the help of those 12 students. And it's now a permanent piece on the campus in the library. You know? Yeah, and I love so, it. Yeah. All that history. So then I do these workshops and create this project called The Links. We go outside the rent building, put these pieces all together. Um, I made it into a festival. I said, we need to be, this needs to be a celebration and we need to call upon everyone, all different ethnicities and backgrounds to come out here. So that project ended up working with 20 people from 20 different countries and over 500 people end up participating in the project. That started back in um, May of last year and ended in October and on November. And we put them all together, inked them all up, had live African band out there, uh, African drummers, live African dancers. Um, people from all over the, the world were there um, at this particular space. And we inked it up and ran a steamroller across. And you've done steamroller. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
this steamroller piece ended up being four feet by 32 feet long. Wow. And That's awesome. We put this thing back up in the Muscarelli Museum on the wall. And then I created some other stuff that went around it, you know, to kind of enrich the narrative and create some more layers to it. And um, that, that was the Lynx Project, man. It was fantastic. Yeah, man. It, it, it looks awesome, too. Like, people really need to check it out. Um, see some pictures of it. It's some, I, it's some on the website. We'll put some links on it uh, when this episode come out. But yeah, that was yeah. that was a, a tremendous project, man. And I think all your your big community based projects are really awesome. I think of the Zipper project and that you did before that, um, all yeah. that kind of stuff. So yeah, man, that, that's a that's a great way to to one like just as 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 just as black printmakers ourselves, we have to constantly introduce the medium to people because it is such a niche thing to do. It is such a specific thing to do. Um, the process and, and the and the work behind it, but I think that it's it's one of those things that anybody can do it, right? It's just wood, ink, and paper. That's all you need. Yes. And, and, you know, and anybody can get into it. It's no, like, age limit to it. It's no, yeah. like, barrier of entry. Like, you, you know, we use tools to make our marks, but you, you can use a Dremel tool. You can use a, a screwdriver. You can use a chisel. You know what I'm saying? You can beat it with a rock. Like, like you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, all, it's anything you can do to get it in, but it's like, it's such it's such a... It's such an easy way to do community through artwork. And I think that you you find you constantly find these great vehicles to to bring other people in, man. It's a good it's a it's an amazing thing to watch, man. Oh man, no, I, I really appreciate that. And um and that's that's I, I'm I'm drawing upon um what we do as printmakers. You know, printmakers is 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 all about community. Yeah. And and you know, um I'm I I read one of your posts. And I and that you said that you were looking forward to getting back into the Atlanta Printmaker Studio, you know, whenever yeah. this opens. Yeah, I can't wait. And, um, and I, I know what that feeling, man. You know, to get back in that space, to get back around those presses, um, to get around those people that you end up running to by chance, and different people that pass through there, different artists that are coming through, and you get to connect with them. And you know, I, I was that the first place that you and I connected at, or did we connect yeah, it was yeah, yeah. You came by, you came by APS because you were there, brought you in at Georgia State or something. Like you were doing a yeah, class, yeah, like somewhere. Right. Yeah, <laughs> you see, community. Yeah, yeah. we ended up we ended up spending like most of the day, most of the day just riding around town, like, talking and talking and kicking it. Yeah, we did with uh with Eric Waters. Yeah, I remember. Yep. <laughs> Yes, yes. I, I, it's like it just all kind of came back at me. But um, yeah, man, because yeah, the Hammond's House Museum is the one who had me there. Yep, that's right. And I, I ended up, and that's when I met Jerusha Graham. Yep, that's right. They had Jerusha um, at Kennesaw State, and then I was over at Georgia State, and I met the printmakers over there, and then I ended up at Clark Atlanta University. I did three different lectures at each one of those spaces when I was there. Meanwhile, I was working on um, a piece. Um, what was the piece I ended up doing? Oh, it was called um, Judges. Uh, Delilah didn't do it. That's what I did there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, that's one, I, that's one thing when I, I I saw you actually carve. And I get it. Did you did I carve with you or were you there doing a demo? Like whatever it was. Like I just amazed how fast you carved too. Like you yeah, like you, you don't be playing around when you when you get to it, man. <laughs> no, no, I don't. Um, I I, I carved I carved most of it before I got there. And I finished it when I was there. That's what I did. Yeah. And and then there's another piece that I carved that I brought there with me. It was called um, uh, Psalms Number Two, 
that voodoo that you do. That's oh, the, man, yeah, the, man. That, I love that yeah. piece. That's that's when yeah. the, the black figures, they got all the symbols and stuff inside of them. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah, yeah I love that one. <laughs> yeah, you can tell I love it because I remember what. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. I appreciate that love, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, that's what's up, man. But before we get uh, out of here, the last, yeah, piece, last thing I'm going to ask you about is this big drawing that you had, um, Who Is My Neighbor? Uh, tell yeah. us about this one. Yeah, um, that drawing I did in... 2015? Yeah, I think it was in 2015. And as, as I said in our talk right now, um, I have been enamored with, uh, with history. And I, I ran across that historical photograph. Um, that was at the March on Washington, and the specific moment was at the end. And they, they, they clasp their hands in very much like a chain link. You know, I think it's a perfect follow-up piece to links. And they link their hands and they cross them over and they were singing, We Shall Overcome. And it has three black people and has two white people. as a white woman and a white man on the end. And it's kind of hard to see, but he actually has a cigarette in his lips. That's, what looked, that's why his mouth was in that kind of configuration. And, um, but I, drew, I kept everything that was in the image. But behind them in that image was... Um, the Lincoln Memorial. And I mean, Lincoln's body and Lincoln's history is, you know, very contested in terms of, you know, did he really care about emancipation and slavery and so forth? And we can go on and on and have a whole historical debate about that. Right. But nonetheless, we know that that was a turning point within our nation. There, there, again, again, we can debate all the issues, but at the heart of it, it was a turning point. It was a, it was a watershed moment. And um, so what I decided to do was actually I did not want to keep everything that was in that original composition. And it was a last minute change up that I did, because when I made the drawing, I started making the characters first. And then I was going to draw the background in, but I decided to leave it off. And then I came up with the idea. It was a bold one because, you know, you know sometimes you do something and you're like in it yeah. and you got you, you got it. And then you can do something that can really kind of actually mess it up <laughs> you know and so i debated hard if i wanted to do it and then i just said no i said i can't be afraid of the art um at no point should i be afraid of making and nor should i be afraid of making the mistake quote unquote right. mistake right and, um and then i have enough belief in myself now as an artist that i think that whatever even if i make the mistake i believe that i can alter it and make it work Hence, that's life. <laughs> and so, um, so I decided. So I cut this male figure and this female figure out of out of um, uh, out of mylar, and then I created vertical lines that were spaced on them, maybe four or six inches apart from each other. And then I began to use a rag with powder graphite, and I did rubbings of all a series of figures in the background, and what they are to be reminiscent of was those who are brought here to be incarcerated in terms of slavery. And those are like DNA strands, or they are like the bodies that would be packed on the bottoms of slave ships. And when those people joined their hands together and linked together that way, they were linking to break those chains, those connections. That's what that work was about. And then I used the biblical story of who is my neighbor, which is Christ's parable of the Good Samaritan, that again begin to exemplify what we must do. And I believe that 
it was not long before Martin Luther King had preached on that, uh, about who is my neighbor. Um, I believe he preached on that the night before he was assassinated. And, uh, and when he preached on it, he talked about the depths of that story and he humanized it, meaning that he brought it to us right now. And in that story, it talks about a man who does something unlike what two other people did not do is help someone who was hurt along the road. Mm. And he uses a man who was considered to be not as high totem pole as the other two who passed him up. He was an everyday person that helped that man and brought him in, got him help that he needed, and told the innkeeper that he would come back and pay the extra bill on top of it. Now, that story is not to basically just be taken from just the pure literal that we got to go ahead and spend our money, whatever. And, and we, you know, in order for you to really be doing something good in your company, your community to help and affect somebody, you got to, um, you know, you, you got to spend this and do whatever. It was about the idea that he saw a person in need and he saw past the fact that he was putting himself in harm's way because he didn't know that man was faking it or he was for real. He didn't know that that man, whoever jumped him, may be waiting in the bushes or behind the rocks ready to jump him, too. The story that Christ told there was about a man who was on his way to Jericho. And as the story goes back in that time period, a person on the road to Jericho was a very treacherous road. Jericho is one of the lowest points on the planet in terms of below sea level. So it was a downward Walk, that you will walk to Jericho to get to wherever that township and the road was treacherous. And that man saw past all that treachery. So I thought that was perfect. I put it online again because it's perfect for this moment as white people are trying to step up and they're trying to begin to speak about different issues. My thing to them is, is that I did a series called Kitchen Talk and I shared stories that took place around my kitchen table. My question becomes is, what is what is the conversation around the white kitchen tables that we don't hear mm. that don't make the public ear? Right. And then how are people who have historically marginalized and who have historically objectified, who have historically um, um, lived off of the backs of blacks and continue to make their wealth and their riches and continue to feed their generations who is challenging that within their own circles at their own kitchen tables? That's what that piece is about. And I believe that's what the story of the Good Samaritan is about, is that what you putting on the on people and what are you risking? And so that's that's what that piece means to me. And that's what I made it out of that spirit. Oh, man, you're a bad boy, man. Yeah, that's all I got to say, man. <laughs> you, 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 know, you know how to get them, man. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you, man. Yeah, for sure, man. And that, and that piece is, is brilliant, man. Tell, tell them where they can find you, man. Oh, absolutely. You can find my work on uh, Black Art in America. Um, um, and then you also can find my work down in Atlanta, Georgia at Zucat um, Gallery. Um, and those are the two main spaces where they can find me and find my work and so forth. And of course, you can find me at the Muscarelli Museum um, in William and Mary at William and Mary. And um, and if you do a search at the Muscarelli Museum, they can connect directly to me. And um, so if people have shows and opportunities and want to purchase the work and support it so I can continue to do this work that I'm doing out in the community. Love the support. 
Um, and, um, and I just want to continue to be able to hopefully be able to speak truth to power, uh, to be able to spread a message of hope, um, a message of love. And, and thank you, Brother Jamal, for giving me this opportunity to speak and to share with you. And uh, I'm so glad to be your brother in, in this journey. And um, and I just look forward to continuing to just do this work out here and just using prints and printmaking and the form and the many different forms of printmaking that we've been exploring. Um, just to continue to just speak about this human condition. That's what's up, man. We need you out here, man. Uh, more than now than ever. You know what I'm saying? We need we need you and, and all those black voices out there uh, telling people, giving people the, the range, like you were saying before, the range of black life and and showing them how to do it, man. And you the man to do it. Man, you got a lot of energy, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you all right with me, man. <laughs> hey, I've been told that. People have said that to me. And I, I have no idea what it is. I'm just I'm just being me, you know. So it's like I got a lot of energy. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> no, I really appreciate that. And uh, and again, I I I I'm thankful for the energy that I have, and I uh, just pray that I'm able to just continue to work in, within the um the space and the context and the energy that I that I um, that I have been. And um, you know, but I'm 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 conscious, uh, very cognizant of. You know, we're getting older every day and um, there are certain things that, you know, you could do in your youth that you're not going to do as you get older. And so um, I'm just hoping that um, I can just continue to be conscious of that and continue to adjust to it and don't overdo and don't overrun myself and run myself down. And oh, for sure. Yeah. A balance. And that's what I tell all the young artists is, you know, about pacing yourself. And and again, I use a lot of sports analogy about that, you know, Um and, and the last thing I'll say about that is that I was responding to a friend of mine and, and I told her she had, she had asked if I could come out to some particular function. And um, and I said, I told her I couldn't I, or I didn't I couldn't come at the moment. And um, and I still was processing through some things. <clears throat> and I said, please don't take it as me as not in support of. Um, I said, I look at everything that's going on, not through the eyes of a sprinter. I look at it through the eyes of a person running a marathon. And so I know that I have to wager my time, wager what I do, what I say, how I say it, right. and know that and know that I'm going to give it all. Um, but I know that this is a long run and I want to go out sprinting right now. So I'm giving a little bit and, and as much as I can give and being conscious of my body and being conscious of I keep this intact. And thinking about the whole spirit that has to operate within this moment. So I keep a regular regimen. I jog every day, about a mile every day. Um, I try my best to keep to cook, cook my food and eat, you know, dinner um, and so forth off my table and not fill up a bunch of junk food, which is easy to do inside the studio when you're just in it and grind. Oh, man. Who are you telling, man? <laughs> and um, then just try to keep up my spiritual life. And um, and so I try to keep a balance between those different things. And that's why I encourage young artists all the time is find that balance, you know. But then, of course, there's this real thing is like bills and you got to hustle. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and there's some sacrifices, you know, and sometimes you're not going to eat as well as you want to eat. And um, but hopefully just try to work towards a point where that's not your everyday. And just keep on doing things incrementally and in how you can move forward to create this best of balance as you possibly can. That's right. So that's that's 
that's my advice I tell young artists. You know, there is no magic formula out here for success. Um, as an artist, it's work, period. That's <laughs> 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 work. That's right. That's right. Work. You gotta work. Work, work, and work some more. That's right. And, but the thing is, this work that I do, I love it. <laughs> and I hope you can tell just from my, from my voice how much I love what I do. And, um, you know, and people that have encountered me, they, 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 they have told me they feel, as you said, that energy, they, they feel the, the joy yeah. uh, in creating um, and the joy in making, the joy in sharing. I, I love doing this. And oh, man. I'm, I, I love the fact that you called upon me and asked for me to share. And, and I told you immediately, you know, anytime, man. So, you know, my door is open to you any day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we appreciate you, Steve. <laughs> Please, brother. And that's it. Another episode of the Studio Noise Podcast in the bag. Big shout out to my man, Steve Prince, my print brother. Always good to hear from you, man. What a, what a great story. This guy, like, I love just listening to him talk, man. So I'm glad y'all got a chance to hear it. Um, man, Steve Prince, make sure y'all go check him out. Uh, and as always, I know y'all are waiting. Uh, already, you're already waiting. After all this, this great episode, you just can't wait for the next episode of Studio Noise Podcast. Well, guess what? We got another great one with this freemium content. We got Jameer Richmond Edwards on Studio Noise coming at you, having another great conversation. Look forward to that. In the meantime, between time, uh, you're in the studio when you need some vibe to listen to. I'm going to kick it back old school. I'm going to tell you how to go listen to Aaliyah, the album Aaliyah. Uh, it's, it was such a great album. You know, such an untimely passing um, from that good sister man she was she was so beautiful and, and making so much great music so uh you know i love this album. said it she'll be more she'll be more 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 you know what i'm saying love that kind of stuff so uh what a great vibe to listen to yo big shout out to her uh to Aaliyah, rest in peace all that good stuff uh thank you so much for listening to studio noise podcast i can't tell you how much i appreciate it so wherever you're listening right now why don't you go ahead and hit that subscribe button if it's soundcloud spotify Apple Podcasts. If you're listening, yo, go ahead and write us a five-star review. Get us pumped up in the charts. Let everybody know about the noise. And be sure to get at us on IG if you want to drop a DM or just comment. See all the posts from all our great artists that we feature on the show. Uh, head over to IG at Studio Noise Podcast. You want to send an email, that's Studio Noise Podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow my co-host, Jiggy Jazz, who's out on assignment. Send us some love. At Negress Supreme, don't forget that dot. And of course, you can follow your boy Jay Barber at Jay Barber Studio on all your social medias. To all my artists out there, don't compare yourself to other people. All right, they they're telling their story, and you tell your story, and your story is beautiful. And I can't wait to hear it, baby. So get in that studio 
and make some noise. Let them know you was here, baby. It's Studio Noise Podcast. We'll see y'all next week. Peace.